James chapter 5, and just going to jump right in here, James chapter 5 um, is where we'll be. So once you find it, go ahead and stand, and uh, we'll, I'm sorry, you were just getting comfortable, looks like some of you, so don't want to mess that up, but maybe it's a good thing to stand one more time before, um, you know, you're sitting for the next two and a half hours. So um, James chapter 5, I'm not kidding, so no, I'm just kidding. James chapter 5, uh, by the way, really enjoyed this special this morning, uh, Where is Jesus, love that song, and uh, it's the first time I've ever heard a quartet sing it, so it was a blessing, um, my wife got it, uh, you know, Lizette, there were technically four people up here this morning, I'm just saying, singing that song, and I was surprised at how she can just still sing and, and breathe and survive and you know, all of those things, and so we're excited about that baby coming, and had a shower yesterday for her, and I heard it went really well, and well attended, and I hope it was a blessing to her. I just love it when, when new parents are expecting first babies. It's exciting, and uh, any babies are exciting, but thankful for Stephen and Lizette. Looking forward uh, to that, uh, that little one coming, and I, I think Brother Spillman and Mrs. Spillman are probably a little bit excited too. And uh, then great to have Lizette's mom here um, from over in the Northeast, uh, Connecticut, right? Um, and good to have you with us. Thank you for coming and uh, coming to check on them. Hopefully we're doing an okay job raising them for you. So anyway, it's a blessing to have you here. Grateful to have you. Just want to remind you, the next time that we come next Sunday, well, I, I, my family and I are leaving. Uh, we'll be gone for a few days this week. I'm preaching at a meeting down in Oklahoma uh, for the Heartland's graduation. And uh, if you wouldn't pray, mind praying for me on Wednesday morning, uh, they have an offering and every year they try to, this year they're really trying to make a big push to, to clear off the debt of the college, the buildings that they just, they've just recently built um, in the last seven, I think six or seven years, um, maybe built a building and, um, and trying to pay off that debt. And the reason that's important is because they're not, not just investing in a campus, they're investing in students. And, and when you have, when you're free of debt, you can do more for what the students need. And, and we'll have a number of our young people going to many colleges at, at probably at times, but you know, Heartland, for those training in ministry, that'll be where a lot of them go. And I'm, so I'm very interested in the school being the best that it can be. And uh, grateful for your willingness to get behind it too. But I'm pre preaching Wednesday morning right before the offering, which is a really mean thing to do to, do to a guy. Um, and, and yet I'm thankful for the opportunity and wouldn't mind if, if our, our Eastside Baptist Church Wednesday morning is praying for, for me and for our family as we go down. We're bringing the kids home, uh, our girls, and then we'll also be bringing uh, Sammy, one of our interns, back with us. He doesn't have a vehicle, and so he'll be waiting for Dakota to get a car um, the next week and come. Um, but Sammy will be here next Sunday, so make sure you greet him. Um, Sammy Mercado is his name. Um, he's from uh, San Diego area. His father is a Spanish pastor there um, in San Diego, and he's a neat guy. I think you'll enjoy getting to know Sammy, and he's excited about coming to, to uh, the real SD for the summer. Okay. <laughs> The one with the real good weather, you know, the, the SD up here, not San Diego. So anyway, okay, James chapter 5 is where we'll be. Verse 13 is where we'll read, and we'll just read. I'd like to read through the end of the chapter, although there, there's, we can't get through all of this today, and it will take a few weeks to do it. But it says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. We covered this verse last week. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, 
and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Our focus tonight is going to be verses 13 um, through, through 16, really 13 through 15 it will be our focus. And, and, and we'll be talking tonight, I'm just calling it tonight, James's prescription. James's prescription um, for, for a sick soul is kind of the idea tonight. And we'll get into the preaching this evening. So let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, we love you. And I love you. I'm so thankful uh, for this truth, this text, and, and there are some that are difficult. This one poses a few difficulties, and yet I, I think uh, I thank you for just the clarity on the, what we can land on, what we do know. And I pray that you'd help us each to realize and recognize uh, that when it comes to being downcast in our soul or even sick in our bodies, there is one great physician, and that great physician, you are always available. And you don't always answer our requests the way that we may want them to be answered, but we know that you are always providing the grace in those situations. And I, I just want to thank you for that. I pray that tonight would be an encouragement and uh, that you'd find ways to apply it because some, again, are difficult to apply and this might be, but I, I just pray that you'd apply it and help us then to take a truth home That'll be a help to us tonight. Lord, bless the reading of your word and give us uh, liberty and clarity here this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And, and so I, I'm calling this tonight James's prescription. It, it reminded me as I read it of going to the doctor and getting a prescription. And, and, and you know how that is. You go and, and, and they try to diagnose you and try to figure out what's going on with you. Then they give you a script, they give you a prescription, and you call it in, and, and then the doctor scribbles some lines on the page, you're not sure what language it's in, you know, that goes, no, no offense, Brother Huntington, uh, he probably has great handwriting, I'm, I'm sure, based on the, uh, the, the impeccableness of his mustache, I'm pretty sure his handwriting is probably pretty well, pretty well established too, but we've got some other doctors in here, you go and you get a prescription, and if you follow the prescription, it's supposed to be a help to you, and and I was thinking about James and thinking about what he tells the readers, what he tells us here, and, and that he is dealing with people who are sick. He's dealing with people who are afflicted, and, and in many ways, he's giving them a prescription. He's, he's writing a letter. Hopefully, he didn't write it like a doctor, or they wouldn't be able to read it back then either, but he's writing this letter, and, he, and he's giving them some things that if they will do in their affliction... Then Dr. James pulls out his notebook and says, okay, I've got some ideas for you while you're being afflicted. Now, their, their affliction at, uh, in the first half of the chapter is coming from those without. I mean, they're being persecuted. They're being treated terribly. They're being, um, they're being uh, for their faith at times, they're being persecuted, some of them being killed. And so Dr. James says, while you're afflicted, I need you to do these things. Uh, first, I need you to be patient. While you're struggling, while you're dealing with affliction, it's very important to be patient. 
Because you don't want to get ahead of God and assume that your answers are better than his. He says, he's writing out the prescription. He says, I need you to establish your heart. Just decide right now that you are going to be strong. You're going to be established. You're going to stand firm because if your heart goes, everything goes. He says, I, I'm going to need you to refuse to grudge or be bitter against each other. Uh, because it's easy when you're afflicted and when trouble is coming that you sit, tend to, we tend to lash out at each other. We tend to blame each other for our problems. And James, Dr. James writes out the prescription and says, no, if you want to survive this affliction, don't be, a, don't be angry with each other. Don't, don't be bitter with each other. And these are things we've already talked about. He says, as you're afflicted, Dr. James says, don't make promises you can't keep just to get out of trouble. Because sometimes we do that and we say, God, if you let me out of this, I will do this. And we don't really have an intention of keeping our word. We're just trying to do whatever we can to get through the affliction. Dr. James says, endure and be faithful because you have a God who will one day make all these things right. That's what he says. Dr. James writes the prescription. He says, and here's another part of the prescription. Pray when it's hard and praise when it's good. And that's what we talked about the last time is that we, we ought to pray when it's hard and praise God when it's good. And those are, these are good prescriptions for affliction. But then he, he, he kind of follows a similar pattern um, in verses 14 and 15. So it, it, think about the, the thoughtful. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And so he gives a different kind of affliction. Uh, to this point, it's been uh, oppression from the outside. But now he's talking about an internal affliction. He's talking about something that, that is a, a, a impacting you on the inside and coming from the inside. And he talks about sickness. And, and so this is a little tricky, I'll tell you, um, this passage. Because um, if, you, if, you, if you don't take it the right way or assume that it's that it's saying one thing you might come um, and say it's making promises that God isn't making and it, so healing from sickness it is a common theme in scripture um, if you think about the old testament Elijah and Elisha they they went about and they healed many people they were prophets representing the Lord but they healed people as they went I think about Jesus Christ in his own ministry there are many instances of him in the New Testament, walking around, it seems like he just went around like a traveling doctor uh, looking for people that needed to be healed. And as people came to him, he would heal them. Um, that was a big part of his ministry. A actually, it was such a big part of his ministry that when John the Baptist there in Matthew chapter 11, remember when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and they come to him and they're, John the Baptist is in prison. Things are not looking good for John the Baptist. He's doubting whether Jesus was really the Christ. So he sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, are you the one that is, should come or should we be looking for another? I just want to know, John the Baptist wanted to know, I mean, things aren't going really well. I'm being afflicted right now. And so I just need to know I'm having doubts. And by the way, it's okay to have doubts. Um, sometimes it is in our doubts that our faith is established because we are so desperately seeking the truth. 
And we, we want something that is firm for ourselves. And I talk to the young people a lot, but young people, you have to go through your own process of building your own faith if you're hoping to stand as an adult. And your parents have faith and they've brought you up the right way, but you've got to learn it for yourself. You've got to grow your own faith for yourself, kick off those training wheels and develop your own faith because there will be times that you doubt. And I think about those that might go to a secular university. I mean, you will be asked to doubt everything that you believe. And you're, you're going to be, you're going, everything you, you believe is going to be questioned. And, and I've walked through this with some young people um, from our youth group in Stillwater when we were there and they went to Oklahoma State University right there in town. They're still very much a big part of the church right there in Stillwater. And yet everything they believed was being questioned and they were having doubts. It's okay to go through doubts, but as you go through doubts, make sure that you go to the right sources to ask for ask your questions. Uh, don't go to your professor or your peers to find out what, you know, what's true or not. No, stick with those that love you the most and have raised you uh, with the Bible. Go to your parents, go to your pastor, go to your youth pastor, go to some man or woman in the church that you respect and, lo- and you know they love you and get your answers from God's word, okay? So doubt is okay, but it's not okay if we doubt and we go to the wrong sources to get our answers because that's a recipe for disaster. So John the Baptist, you know, guess who he goes to? He, he can't get out of prison, but he sends his disciples directly to Jesus. He says, I'm going to go to Jesus to ask uh, the ants, get the answers to these questions. And so Jesus then tells his disciples, um, you go back to the prison and you tell John that the blind see. And you tell John that the deaf are hearing. And you told John that the lame walk and that the dead are raised up and that the poor have the gospel reached unto them. And what Jesus is saying is that his ability to heal was the sign um, that he was the Messiah. Healing people was a sign from Jesus to the Jews that he was who he said he was. And as he did that, he was also revealing God's heart to men. And that he was letting them know, if you watch Jesus for any length of time, if you were alive while he was there, you would have seen him heal people, heal uh, many, many people, one after another. And in healing people, everything that Jesus did was giving us a glimpse into the heart of God. So every time he healed somebody, you know what you could, what assumption you could come to is that God cares about healing people. Because Jesus didn't do anything that wouldn't reflect God in an accurate way. So the fact that his ministry, very much of his ministry, was about healing gives us an idea that God cares about the lepers, that God is willing to touch a leper, that God is willing to reach down and touch a crooked limb, that God is willing to cast demons out, and God wants to raise the dead. God wants to heal because he's a compassionate God, and he loves healing, and, and the healing ministry of Jesus Christ tells us that God wasn't, is not above touching broken bodies and healing them from their sicknesses. So it's not a surprise then necessarily that the Holy Spirit here in James inspires him to write about God's heart for healing. Because God does have a heart for healing. And we see a pattern from James here. He says, if you're afflicted, pray. If you're married, praise. And if you're sick, God has a plan for that too. And here's the plan that he has, that he mentions. He says, let the sick, um, is any sick among you, let him call the elders, call for the elders of the church. 
And so what he says here, he says, get your church leadership involved. And elders, that's another word for pastors or bishops. These are those that are charged with oversight or, or spiritual responsibility in the congregation. Uh, but more importantly than, than who he might be referring to, notice who has the responsibility in the scenario. It, it says that the sick person has the responsibility to call. And this is interesting. The implication here is that the church elders may not automatically know when someone is sick. And so take note of this, okay? This is a help. Offenses have come in churches many times because someone was sick and never told anybody. And be careful then of assuming that it's the responsibility of other people to notice when you're gone or, or maybe you're sitting out because of sickness. It's not really fair to say, well, let's see how long till the pastor notices. Well, I can, I can tell you this. I, I didn't notice my wife had a new dress on first thing this morning. So the fact that I may not notice if you're sick, I'm sorry. I've got other things I'm thinking about. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying I never notice. I mean, I notice who's not here right now. I mean, these things go through my mind. I'm like thinking, well, this family was here this morning, but they're not here tonight, and they typically are. Or, or you know, this man was just here earlier, and where is he now? I mean, those things go through my mind. I, I do think about those things. Um, but I also don't assume that every reason somebody misses is a big deal. Now, I think when you miss, it is a big deal. But I, I'm not going to, to I, I mean, there'll be times I check on people uh, but, but you have to be under, understand that don't be angry uh, with people by assuming nobody cares about you um, because the responsibility here lies with the person who has the issue. It's an immature response to say, well, nobody cares and the pastor doesn't love me and nobody, because nobody noticed. No, based on this scenario, then you have, and I'm just going to give it to you straight like the Bible does, you have a scriptural responsibility or obligation to pick up the phone and say, Pastor, I'm sick and just wanted to let you know. And if you think there's cause for the next step, you could say, could you come and pray with me? It shouldn't be a cause for offense. And, and, and you also, though, have to understand that this pastor has obligations, other obligations in the church. So there may be times that you have to be patient with my schedule. But I can tell you this, if it's an urgent situation, there have been very few times where I didn't drop whatever and anything that I was doing to try to go and be with somebody. And, and I, I'll do that when I can. And as a balance, though, if you have a cold, don't ask me to come and give it to me. Listen, but you're, you're in the hospital. I want to know that. We want to know that. Uh, let me give you more insight. Sometimes people say, oh, don't waste your time, preacher, by coming to visit little old me. And, and then I find out later um, that they're offended that I didn't. Or how'd you find out I was in the hospital? I didn't want to bother you. And if it becomes an offense, then I have to assume it could become an offense. And I'll do what I can. I'm not, I know I'm not perfect in this area. There have been times where I missed it or times I couldn't make it. I, I really wish I could read minds. But I, well, maybe actually, no. I'm glad I can't read minds. That's a, it's a good thing we can't read minds. I'm assuming, though, your affliction, your affliction isn't a visit-worthy affliction unless I hear from you about it. That's the responsibility. I, I'm not trying to pass the responsibility off. I'm just letting you know what the Bible says. This is really all we have to go on 
right here. And if you're sick and if you feel like you need it, call myself, call Brother Samuel, call one of our deacons, call one of our trustees or spiritually mature men, anybody that preaches in this pulpit. I can tell you this, we'd be happy to come and pray for you. There wouldn't be any time, I, I guarantee that we, I would, couldn't call another man in our church and he wouldn't drop what he's doing if there was something that we need to go and pray over you for. If you're sick and you feel like you need it, call and we would be happy. But the sick person should call for the prayer. And, and here's what the elders are supposed to do. I'm just going to walk through this just so you see 14. He says, any sick among you, let him, let him pray, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when the elders come or the, the pastors, the leadership comes, they would pray over the sick person. Um, and he says, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And you say, okay, well, what does he mean talk, by talking about oil? Well, I believe he's talking about 10W30, probably. No, I mean, I wish it was laid out like that. Um, here are some explanations, though. There's, there is ceremonial anointing of oil in the Bible. It happens. Oil in the Old Testament is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when priests were anointed or kings were anointed ceremonially, it was they were being set apart. They were, it was a symbolic ritual in the Old Testament. But the word anoint in verse 14 isn't necessarily uh, about a ceremony. It actually literally means to rub or to rub oil on the person. Like in Luke chapter 10, you know, when the uh, Good Samaritan anointed the body of that beaten man. In primitive times, olive oil was used um, medicinally and it still is in some cultures. So when the elders made the call on the sick... Uh, at, they were going to their home since there were no hospitals as, as we know them. I mean, Sioux Falls has a clinic on every corner. I, I mean, you could just like literally put a blindfold on and walk into some kind of medical building in this city. They're, they're everywhere. It wasn't that way back then. Uh, they would go to the home of the person that was sick. And if the person had not had medicinal application... Then they would apply the medicine. They, uh, what they had was oil. They, wouldn't, uh, they would anoint or rub it on. And, and I, be, I believe that's probably the application here. I know that some may uh, disagree with that and think, you know, it's strictly ceremony and it's just strictly symbolic. But the word anoint means, it means to rub. It literally means to rub, and, and, and that's a, a common usage there. So James then said to apply this, though, here's where it, it becomes, uh, where I think we can come together in agreement. James says to apply it in the name of the Lord. So he, he did say, I do believe he's saying that take this oil, this is you know, medicinal in purpose, but when you apply it, apply it in the name of the Lord, which acknowledges that, that we don't trust the medicine, nor do we trust a ceremony or symbol to heal somebody. We are trusting in God to do the healing. And, and that, so that phrase, by anointing in the name of the Lord, it's acknowledging we are limited and God is not. And if God chooses to, if it's in his will, he can heal this person. We believe that. I believe that God is still in the business of healing people. You've seen it. I've seen it. We know that it happens. So knowing this, it's important to understand that the oil is not some supernatural vehicle of divine power. 
Um, the oil is symbolic when used in the Bible. It was associated with consecrating somebody or setting them aside for service. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But applying oil, it was a serious and symbolic act. In a way, it was a way for God's people to set a sick person apart for the intervention and help of the Holy Spirit. It's a means of comfort and encouragement. But we don't believe there's magic in the bottle. The point is not that we are doing this in a, some ceremonial or symbolic way. The point is this is a prescription and it's in a deliberate act that lets us acknowledge together with the sick person that God is going to have to heal you. It has nothing to do with the medicine. Don't miss that the focus is on the Lord's involvement. They're to do it in the name of the Lord. And then he says in verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Well, understand the point of calling the elders is not so they can lay hands on you and, and be faith healers. I, I really wanted to get into that part, but I'm not going to. There's no such thing as faith healers, by the, by the way. Uh, don't be deceived by what you see on TV. The, um, the, the TV preachers that, that heal on TV, it's a racket, okay? And it's been proven. The point is not the elders. And the point is not the oil. Um, it's symbolic, that's it. The focus is this. The Lord is the one who determines the healing or not. And our job, listen, our job is not to figure out when the Lord is going to heal and when he's not going to heal. Who God is going to intervene for and who God is not going to intervene for. We don't get to judge his timetable. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to say this is the person he heals and this one isn't. Or we don't, and then also we don't have to bear the burden when we maybe go through a process of prayer and God doesn't heal. It's not on us if God chooses not to answer it that way. We have one job, to offer a prayer of faith. This is where the issue then lies with the passage for some people because it seems like it's an unqualified healing. If you do this, God will do this. And honestly, it would be easier if the text said the prayer of faith might save the sick and the Lord could raise him up. I kind of wish this week as I was studying it that it said that. But we all know of situations in which God didn't answer like we wanted. And there are plenty, I mean, I look around the room, I know people that God did answer. And I think of Gabby back here. I'm thankful God answered our prayers the way that he did. But, but sitting in front of her just this morning, um, where are the Johnsons? You know, so, so, and I can promise you this, after spending time in the hospital uh, the, the week that Dahlia died, I can promise you this, there are lots of prayers of faith going up. So are we going to sit here then and say, well, you know, your prayer of faith wasn't enough and their prayer of faith was? Well, I don't think that's what the text is trying to get us to. Because that would lay the burden of healing on us and the focus is not on us in this pa passage. The focus is on the God who heals. And there are plenty of well-known examples in the Bible in which the Lord didn't heal. I mean, truth is, not all of our sicknesses or traumas are going to be healed. The Apostle Paul in, 
in 2 Corinthians, I read this in Sunday school, he had a thorn in his flesh. And because of the revelations and because of the way God was using him in a way that was incredible and extraordinary, he was being lifted up or exalted in this really special big way by people or, and they were lifting him up. And so the Bible says because of God's ability to use him, God gave him a thorn in the flesh or allowed a thorn in the flesh to come into his life. And three times the Apostle Paul prayed that God would remove that thorn in the flesh. I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe some people say maybe it was his eyesight. It was some kind of physical ailment. Um, but God didn't heal it. As a matter of fact, though, through that healing, God allowed Paul to learn that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And if I will simply submit to God using me, he will give me the power of Christ in my weakness. So are we though going to say that Paul did, wasn't able of, uh, to pray a prayer of faith enough to be healed? No, I don't think that's it at all. God had a different plan for Paul. And God actually used that affliction to grow Paul. I think about somebody like, uh, came to my mind like Fanny Crosby. You know, Fanny Crosby wrote many of the hymns in our hymnal and Blessed Assurance and many other wonderful ones that we cherish. And, and for, but those maybe who don't know, Fanny Crosby was blind. And I wonder how many times she prayed for healing and never got it. I mean, do you think that she probably prayed for that at times in her life? I imagine she did. Uh, I imagine she prayed and had enough faith. She was a woman of faith. She was a godly person. There's no way you can write about the things she wrote about and not be in touch with the Lord on some level. I don't doubt that she had prayers of faith, but rather than be healed of her blindness, she gained a new perspective. Here's something she said. She said, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If, perfectly earthly, if perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns of, uh, to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind, for when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. And it's those examples, though, that help us understand what it means to pray a prayer of faith. A prayer of faith does not mean we pray with enough passion and enough intensity that God can't help but answer. He's like, well, you reached the threshold. You know, kind of reminds me of, of, of one of those games at the carnival where, you know, the sledgehammer and the, the ball, the thing goes up and has to hit the bell. And it's like, we're praying as hard as we can. And it only goes halfway and God's like, I'm not answering until you ring the bell, buddy. He doesn't say, sit in heaven and say that to us because uh, it, that's not the point of the passage. Should we pray with intensity? Yes. Should we pray with faith? Absolutely. It says that we should. But, but prayer of faith doesn't mean that we've got to pray with enough intensity that God can't help but answer. No, a prayer of faith means that we pray trusting that God knows better than me. And I will trust whatever his answer is. That's faith. Trusting that God knows best and the prayer of faith means that we trust in a sovereign God to carry out his will. Uh, we believe nothing is beyond him. We believe that he can heal anyone and he can do it any time and he often does. And he, we believe that he works in every circumstance to bring about his glory. But that does not mean that God is obligated to answer every prayer the way that I want him to. 
So how do we explain this verse in this verse that a prayer of faith, you know, trusting in God's sovereignty to answer is going to heal the sick or raise them up because that's what it sounds like. Well, part of the issue in our understanding is the understanding of the word sick. And and it certainly could mean that someone is physically ill, ill, but this word is only used three times in the New Testament. And if you look it up, I looked it up in the Strong's Concordance of all the times that it's used in the New Testament. And the other times that it's used, it actually means weary or faint. So when it says save the sick, save means to rescue. Not in the sense of salvation necessarily, but in the sense of restoration. And when James writes, raise him up, it means to awaken or arouse. So when you think about it and you consider the context of scripture as a whole, the Lord isn't promising physical healing through a prayer of faith. No, he's promising restoration and refreshment to the beaten down and wearied Christians. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they are. The elders come by and pray over them and anoint them with oil. Does that mean they're immediately healed physically? Well, no, not every time. But when you've been beaten down, listen, when you've been beaten down and you are weary and you are exhausted from the battle, and maybe you've been persecuted like some of these had been persecuted. And maybe your body is battered and you just feel like throwing in a towel. And and as you're laying in your bed and you're sick and you're at the end of yourself and and you've, you've sent out a call to the elders of the church and you're ready to just give in and then suddenly you get a knock on the door. And the door is open and there are your pastors. And they come in and they, and they talk to you and you can't get up because you're sick or you're weary or you're just beaten down. And your pastors come in to the room and they surround your bed. And they, they, they take out some ointment and they say, man, this, this cut or this, this, looks, this bruise looks really bad. We're going to apply this right here. We're going to put this on your, on your arm right here. We're going to anoint you. We're going to rub this in and maybe this will be a help to you. Um, but we're not just going to anoint oil. We're going to do it in the name of the Lord because he's the great physician. And they look at you while you're in the bed and they say, we're going to anoint you in the name of the Lord. And then we're also, hey, by the way, brother, we, we want to pray over you today. So they take their hands and they put their hands over your body. And they pray a prayer of faith. And in that moment, does it mean that God is obligated to take all the pain out of your body? No. He may leave it there. I mean, in that moment, does it mean that your broken bones are immediately healed? Say, well, I've been watching TV and that's what happens on TV, so I believe it's going to happen to me too. No, it's not what it means. But I can tell you this, when you're broken and beaten and weary from the battle and a group of spiritual people come into the room and surround you and help take care of your, your, your needs and your, your physical needs, but not just your physical needs, your spiritual needs, they surround you and they pray over you, I can tell you one thing, I'd feel a whole lot better as you're leaving than I did before you got there. Amen. It's encouraging. 
It's a help to my spirit that somebody would take the time. And see, what James is telling us is this. Now, there may be times it seems a little bit out of the blue at the end of verse 15 when he says, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. You say, well, that's a little bit out of the blue. Unless you take into account that James's focus is not on restoration of the body. It's on restoration of the spirit. And it could be that the person who is afflicted is dealing with self-affliction. And maybe their sin is the reason that they're in the trouble that they're in. It could be a disease they caught because they weren't living right. It could be be that God is judging them. Now understand, I'm not saying that every sickness is connected to sin. But sometimes sin is at the root of our physical problems. I mean, I, I, know, I know people, and you probably do too, and a, a, a sinful thought or a sinful act is something they just focus on, and it affects their body. It's happened to all of us. I'm not saying that sin never has um, an impact. I'm not saying that sin always have an, has an impact. Sin is certainly often at the root of our spiritual fatigue and weakness, though. And we'll talk about this more next time. But what James is telling us to do is this. And I hope you'll get this. There are things outside of your control that only God can do. So let him. But in the meantime, do what it takes to be encouraged. And do what it takes to be right with God. See, what does it take to be encouraged? Well, what he says here is you get encouraged when your church family shows up. And prays over you and helps you with your problems. But here's what a lot of us do when we're afflicted and we're weary and we're beaten from the battle. We withdraw. And in the moment that we need friends the most, we're nowhere to be found. And, you know, I'm having a tough time, I'm having a tough day, so guess what? Guess what? I'm not going to come to church. Well, you know, that's exactly opposite of what James says we need in the time of our affliction. When you're beaten down and you're weary and you're spiritually fatigued, that's when you need your church family the most. That's when you need spiritual encouragement the most. And when you're discouraged, you need to lean on the people around you. So call the elders. Call your friends. Don't hole up at home licking your wounds and thinking that you're going to get better in isolation. That's not how it works. James is saying when you're afflicted either by sickness or by persecution or even if it's self-afflicted because of sin, lean on your church family. That's who you need in those moments. And sometimes when we're afflicted, we draw away, we draw back and nothing could be worse for us. That's when you need to draw near. And I'm just telling you today, you have church family that loves you. And we want to be a help to you. We want to be an encouragement. But don't forget the responsibility lies with the afflicted person to make the first call. There are things outside of your control that only God can do. So let him work. But in the meantime, do what it takes to be encouraged. And by that I mean surround yourself with people that will help you. But number two, do what it takes to be right. Because he says if there's a sin in your life, and then it needs, you need to figure that out too. It could be that sin in your life is the reason for your affliction. Not always. And it's not our place to determine that in somebody else. But we need to determine that in our own life. And when you're down and you're weary and you're spiritually weak, it, the chances are high that you need to do some self-examination. 
You need to just stop and help the Lord. Listen, I heard somebody say, and I'd like to use this more. There's one prayer that God always answers. I just heard this today. One prayer that God always answers, and that is this. God, will you show me what I need to change? I believe that every time you pray that, God says, I would love to show you what you need to change. He's ready to hear that from some of our lips tonight. God, show me what I need to change. Show me what sin is in my life and help me to determine that. And listen, we need a heavy dose of self-examination when we're spiritually weak and we're spiritually fatigued. We need to make sure that there's not sin at the root of our problems. And if sin is discovered, that's problem number one. That's where you start. And I would just say, if you're spiritually weak or fatigued and and you need to do some self-examination, first, give God permission to do a sin search. Give him permission. I mean, just say, open the door and say, God, the house is yours. You walk through every room and you do what you need to do. Do a sin search. Like David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Psalm 139. So give God permission to do a sin search. But number two, when, if, if sin is found, acknowledge your sin. Now, sometimes we give God permission to do a sin search and then he finds something in our bedrooms like, I don't know who put that there. Well, it's, it's ours. It's mine. So if, if you give him permission and he brings something up, don't say, well, surely I didn't mean that part, God. No, if I give him permission, then I will acknowledge my sin. Now, David said again, Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge by my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. God, it's all out on the table. I told you you could look, you found something, and I take responsibility. That's number three, take full responsibility. So number one, give God permission to do your, a sin search. Two, acknowledge your sin. Three, take responsibility for your sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. When you take responsibility for your sin, that's when God starts to bless you. And then finally, just confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Give God permission to do a sin search. Acknowledge your sin. Take responsibility for your sin and confess your sin. And the promise is reiterated right here. And if you have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I'm not saying that your affliction is caused by your sin for sure. I'm not saying that. But it could be that there is sin in your life that is contributing to that affliction. And if that's the case, that's problem number one that needs to get solved. Sometimes the elders of the church are called to come be an encouragement. But the person that's afflicted hasn't taken time to clean the house. I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. And you can have elders pray over you. And you can have elders dip you in a vat of of 10W30. It will not fix your problem unless you come face to face with God about your sin first. And if you confess it though, they'll be forgiven. I'm thankful for that truth. You know, this is probably the best indication that James is not making a blanket promise about physical healing. He's talking about restoration. He's talking about encouragement. And nothing is as restoring and encouraging as having fellowship with friends and forgiveness from your father. Nothing will restore your spirit like fellowship with friends and forgiveness from the father. So here's James' message. Faith means you let God do what only he can do. But in the meantime, 
You ought to do what you can do. See, when we're afflicted, don't sit in a corner. Don't isolate yourself and wait for people to notice. Don't withdraw. Faith should work. You should take steps. Reach out. Assume you can't do it alone because you're not meant to. But at the same time, ask the Lord to reveal any shortcomings in your life that you need to deal with. And don't blame everybody else. And, and just look inward. And if sin is found, make it right. And maybe you'll discover that the prayer of faith really does raise the sick. It really does raise the weary. It really does lift up the spiritually exhausted. Not just in body, but in spirit. See, let God take care of healing your body, but you be aware there's a prescription to heal your soul. Friends and forgiveness. That's the prescription. God's prescription for the spiritually weak is your friends and forgiveness. Have you withdrawn? And maybe you're, you're really feeling it. You're spiritually exhausted. You're weak and you're, you're struggling. If you've withdrawn, it's time to come back. Because you need friends. You need fellowship. You need some people to come around you. Knock on your door. And just say, we're here. Have you been waiting for somebody else to notice? No, it's on you to reach out. Um, have you allowed things to maybe build up internally in your life and you know they're hurting you? Well, it's time to come clean. Forgiveness. God may not promise to raise our bodies right now by the way right now he will eventually but he does promise to raise our spirits if we'll follow his prescription and i just i i was watching an interview this week um i don't know many of you may know who michael j fox is and i don't typically use illustrations from hollywood but this was an interview I, I just saw on, on YouTube. And I don't know if you know anything about Michael J. Fox in the 80s. Um, as an eight-year-old kid, you know, um, I thought he was really cool, you know. And he was on a TV show when he was conservative. So I thought, man, he must be a good Christian man because, you know, but he, Michael J. Fox was a big actor for a long time. Um, but in, in the last 15, 20 years, um, he's been really, his body's been overtaken by Parkinson's. And, and here he was in the limelight. I mean, in the limelight. I mean, as famous as you can get in the 80s. Big, as a star, uh, big of a star as you can get in the 80s. And, and yet I saw this, this uh, YouTube uh, a thumbnail and I clicked on it because it's Michael J. Fox interview. And it said something about optimism. And so I turned it on and, and he's, he, he really can barely control his body at all. He has no control over his, over his movements. He's trying to talk. He's just trying to look at the interviewer in the face and, and can't do it. And he's looking everywhere else. His voice sounds pretty strong, but, but you can tell he's really fighting and struggling um, to look at the interviewer and he just can't do it. I mean, his body's just racked with this disease. And, and he made a statement that really stuck with me and I wrote it down right then um, or put it in my phone right then. He, he said, with gratitude optimism becomes sustainable with gratitude optimism becomes sustainable and what he's saying is I have a lot of reasons to throw in the towel but I am choosing to remain grateful for the things that I still have and if I can remain thankful 
then optimism is sustainable. Because most people think that optimism is you ride the waves and then it's up and down. But what he's saying is I have discovered if I will focus on the things that I still have, I can be optimistic, optimistic all the time. I can be, it's sustainable. I'm not saying he doesn't have the ups and downs. But what, I, but what we would say that, that he has in the midst of his, this terrible disease, he has decided to take the reins of the one thing no one can take from him. And that's his attitude. See, we'd say he was afflicted. He's sick. I'm sure he's spent many years weary and beaten down and exhausted. But instead of focusing on what he can't control, Michael J. Fox is focusing on what he can control. And I don't know if he's a believer or not. He's probably a non-believer. But I'm just telling you this. If a non-believer can make a choice like that, then imagine what you and I can do with the help of the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of our afflictions, in the middle of our weariness, in the middle, middle of our spiritual exhaustion, we can choose to focus on the things that will help to encourage our spirit, like friends and forgiveness. I want to stay right with my God, and I want to stay in touch with the people I know. Those are the two things I need to focus on. Let God have the final say over your body. But don't let your affliction have the final say over your spirit. Let God have the final say over your body. But don't let your affliction have the final say over your spirit. It doesn't have to. It's not the boss of you, as the kids so eloquently say. The prescription for a healed spirit is friends and forgiveness. So just do what you can control and let God take care of the rest. Are you spiritually weak? Are you spiritually exhausted? Are you beaten down, broken, afflicted? There's a prescription for that. Your friends and forgiveness. If you'll focus on those things, you can have encouragement even in affliction. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed tonight. And have a verse of invitation and just give you some time to seek the Lord tonight and maybe just pray to him as an afflicted, an afflicted, weary Christian maybe tonight and come to him and say, there are a lot of things outside my control, but the things I can control, God, I want to take back control of. I can control my attitude. I can control the people I, stay, I, I spend time around. And I can control my confession of sin and forgiveness because that's a choice I will make. If you'll do that, I'm telling you, God may not raise your body, but he can raise your spirit. And God doesn't promise to fix all of our physical ailments, but we don't have to stay spiritually weak and exhausted. There's a prescription for that.